Interesting about Zelensky. One day he wants negotiations and the next day he seeks more weapons. And NATO, which Zelensky has many times said, we don't need to be in NATO. Understanding that this was always the kind of jujitsu strangeness. They couldn't even join NATO if they were invited to join NATO right now because of the territorial difficulties inside Ukraine. That's Katrina Vandenhuvel, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Katrina Vandenhuvel on Russia, Ukraine, the war, and the United States. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, with its horrific atrocities and massive refugee crisis, has turned the world upside down. The war will have a huge impact on global food security as both countries are major exporters of wheat, barley, and other grains. As usual, the media provide very little context and background. We're told ad nauseum that the Russian invasion was unprovoked. A careful look at history reveals a slightly more nuanced picture. To explain is not to excuse Moscow's criminal attack. Meanwhile, As two-time legendary Medal of Honor winner Marine General Smedley Butler reminds us, war is a racket. U.S. weapons corporations are lining up to feed at the trough. Before the war is over, many Ukrainians and Russians will die, while Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, and Northrop Grumman will make money hand over fist. Our guest today is Katrina Vandenhuvel. She's the editorial director and publisher of The Nation magazine. She writes a weekly column for The Washington Post and has edited or co-edited such books as The Change I Believe In and Voices of Glasnost. I talked with her on April 11th. Welcome to the program. Thank you, David. Well, uh, clearly the war, the Russian invasion of the Ukraine uh, dominates uh, the media pundits and the, and the politicos in Washington, Moscow, and, and throughout Europe. But before we get into the actual war itself, uh, talk about the history of these two nations, Russia and the Ukraine, and how they've been intertwined, not just geographically, but culturally, uh, their languages, uh, Russian, you're a Russian speaker, and Ukrainian are very close. So someone told me it was like a Spanish and Portuguese in terms of being similar. So talk about that background of the, between the two countries. Thank you for beginning with history. Uh, I followed Russia over many years, 40 years plus, and the U.S.-Russian relationship. Uh, in terms of Ukraine, what I do know is that every Russian I have known over these last years has a relative of some kind in Ukraine. The intertwining of families, of relationships, to some extent culture, has been deep. And there's a sense of a Slavic brother, Russia, Ukraine, to some extent Belarus. Part of the conflict that we witness has such deep history, we can talk about that. But there is a sense, without demeaning Ukraine's independence and sovereignty, of a civil war inside Ukraine Uh, That had to do with linguistic rights. One of the first things that happened in 2014 was the uh, abolition of Russian language use in the eastern part. 
So there's been a kind of civil war between the East and the West over the years that has become a proxy war in some measure. Because I don't think you can talk about the Ukraine crisis right now without calling it a Ukraine-Russia-US-NATO crisis. But Ukraine has a deep history, complicated history. I mean, so much of that terrain has been defined by a war, World War II, that you know killed 27 million people, Soviets, which we know so little about. But we do know the East-West confrontation over Ukraine is now the epicenter of not a new Cold War anymore, David. It's a hot war. Just to back up even a little bit before World War II, which when uh, Germany invaded uh, the Soviet Union and took tremendous destruction in in Ukraine, uh, prior to that, in the early 30s, uh, there was a great famine in Ukraine in which millions of Ukrainians died. And it's known by them as the Holodomor, I don't know if I'm yes. pronouncing that correctly, murder by hunger, and, and according to the Guardian Weekly, was consistently referred to as a deliberate act by Stalin to destroy the Ukrainian nation. There's a lot of discussion and debate in the scholarly community about whether it was targeted at Ukraine or whether it was simply part of Stalin's brutal campaign to uh, attack the kulaks and the killing of Russians of Ukrainians uh, was sometimes seen as a um, you know it was there was an equivalent there were so many killed by Stalin. Now Steve, my late husband, wrote a book called The Victim's Return, and we have been involved with a gulag museum in Moscow, which marks the Ukrainian famine. But what it does is bring different points of view to bear. But the Stalin gulag and the issue of how many Stalin killed is a broad question. The question of whether it was targeting the collectivization, which was part of his policy, was brutal unto itself. A little fast forward to February 1989, the last Soviet troops withdraw from Afghanistan. November 9th of that same year, 1989, the Berlin Wall falls. Two years later, the USSR dissolves. The country's leader, Gorbachev, and his foreign minister, Shevardnadze, negotiated with the then H.W. Bush administration and its secretary of state, James Baker. It is during these negotiations that an offer was made to Moscow because of its security concerns that NATO would not move, I'm quoting here, one inch to the east. Now, you have looked at the veracity of this comment. Is it documented? It is documented. It is documented in the National Security Archives, a nonprofit group in Washington, D.C., which received the files and documents from those who were around Gorbachev, including Gorbachev's files, but a man named uh, Chernyayev and others. Several books have been written with documentation, primary documents. What's so tragic, David, is if one believes in alternatives that could have brought more security, the opportunity at the end of the Cold War, at the end of the Soviet Union, to have a non-military alliance in Europe was a real possibility. The Soviet Union ended, its counterpart to NATO, the Warsaw Pact, was dissolved. And instead of a vision Gorbachev had of a kind of transatlantic European home, 
from stretching from Vladivostok to Lisbon, NATO. And NATO was at first a few countries, but then it moved quickly, particularly in 2008 when Ukraine and Georgia were put, you know, offered fast track. But this is one of the most tragic, perilous alternative steps that did not need to be taken. And for a brief moment, people were signed on to an alternative. I think James Baker needs much more scrutiny because he seems to have played a central central role. You know, there's the famous interview with an esteemed diplomat, George Kennan, in 1997, who said this will be one of the grave mistakes. It will lead to new Cold War, to uh, a relationship between Russia and the United States fraught with militarization. And it has come to pass. And one takes no joy in feeling that one saw the possibility of this. So decades later, you had NATO on Russia's borders. It wasn't not one inch eastward. I also think people forget how significant it was. You talked about Afghanistan. Steve and I were in the Soviet Union when the troops came home. That was a very contested decision inside the Russian Soviet government. So you have that, and then you have a sense of betrayal on the part of the Soviet government that you had the NATO expansion later. Gorbachev, who is 91, in Moscow, in a clinic, was one of the great visionary leaders. He is more respected at home today than he has been. The danger, the sadness is he's linked with Yeltsin. And uh, that history hasn't gone that well. So in your view, a great opportunity. Great opportunity. Rapprochement. More than rapprochement. A different approach to world inner, to, to the world. You have militarization. You have a militarism of foreign relations today across the globe. 40, 50 years ago, you remember Olaf Palm, you remember Willy Brandt, but an idea that human security, which today seems very relevant, climate, pandemic, nuclear proliferation, global inequality, poverty. These are the challenges and crises of our time, which military might is not well suited to deal with. And so on offer was an alternative way of engaging and shaping a world. It's now seems so far away. And we've seen the costs of NATO expansion quite brutally, uh, because I do think that there are other factors that NATO has played a role in what we see in the brutality in Ukraine. You mentioned George Kennan, the much revered and venerated uh, State Department diplomat, Uh, In that same statement that he made in 1997, he said, expanding NATO, I'm quoting here, such a decision may be expected to inflame the nationalistic, anti-Western and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion to have an adverse effect on the development of Russian democracy and to restore the atmosphere of the Cold War to East-West relations and to impel Russian foreign policy in directions decidedly not to our liking. And that indeed has come to pass. Um, And it's not like Kennan was some, you know, radical uh, thinker. You know, It was Mr. X who had written about the need to contain the Soviet Union. He was quite sober. He was considered a realist. Then you have also Clinton's defense secretary weighing in on uh, NATO expansion. Again, not a radical leftist by any means, Bill Perry, 
uh, in 2016, uh, he said, in the last few years, most of the blame can be pointed at the actions that Putin has taken. But, he said, in the early years, I have to say the United States deserves much of the blame. Our first action that really set us off in a bad direction was when NATO started to expand, bringing in Eastern European nations. He said Russia was, quote, very uncomfortable about having NATO right up to their border, and they made a strong appeal for us not to go ahead with that. There were many appeals repudiated. I have to say, when I think of Bill Perry, you're right, no radical. But there's an expression in Russia you know, when you go on pension, you become a dissident. And I mean, you know, he's kind of in that mode. And not only is he quite prescient in terms of his understanding of the danger of NATO expansion, but he's also been very wise about nuclear issues, which again needs to be brought into this discussion. But he's really continued prior to an awareness, it seems to me, of nuclear peril in these last years to to sound the alarm. There's also someone else, no radical, the head of the CIA, William Burns, who very clearly came back from Washington. I think he was then the ambassador in 2008 and warned Washington, the establishment, that NATO expansion was not simply a Putin obsession, but across the political spectrum in Russia, it was very dangerous to expand. So there were many um, warnings. There were many warnings about the possibility and the need to define a different policy. But you know, David, when policies get invested and vested in D.C., it's not simply the president, nor is it his advisors, but it's, you know, Ray McGovern. I don't know if you know him, but Mickey Matt It's not simply and I don't believe it's simply the military industrial complex. But you also have the media. You have Congress. You have think tanks. You have a whole array invested in this policy. So it becomes very difficult to turn it around. It was easier at a different point, but, you know, the warnings were there. I will say, however, and I don't want to jump ahead, but February 24, Steve no longer here, but I've worked with many people who've studied the Soviet Union and Russia for 50 years in shock that Russia went into Ukraine. And I think there was, even among those who've advocated for an alternative policy, there was not a sense of how far it had gone. Could I just say one thing? One of the reasons, there was shock, and there's legitimate, more than legitimate shock. But David, we have not had a debate in this country in the last decade. It's been one hand clapping. I mean, I'm not saying people have to agree with me, but you do need to have a range of views or certainly a debate. And that, to some extent, has been shut down. Your program, the nation, there are different points of view, but the narrative, the dominant narrative has been anti-Russian, Russophobia, and a misunderstanding that a country is not just one leader. Now, um, talk about um, what is talked about in the media quite a bit, and that is Russia annexing Crimea in 2014, reversing a a 1954 Khrushchev decision to transfer Crimea, which was part of Russia, to Ukraine. And of course, Putin has reversed that and has uh, annexed uh, Crimea. What's going on there and in the Donbass area, the Donetsk 
and uh, Lohansk, these two, this large region with these two, what, sub-regions within them, Luhansk and Donetsk? So Donbass is the region, and Russia has had people in there fighting. The eastern part of Ukraine has traditionally been Russian-speaking. It's been the heavy manufacturing, it's the factories, it's the miners. So when the protests started, made Mardan, there was a new leader in Kiev. They um, began to fight those in the Donbass, Ukrainians, and mounted an anti-terrorist operation in 2014, which wasn't conducive to any negotiated settlement of the two regions. You did have the Minsk Accord, which has been the primary settlement document. But this is still contested. There will have to be, if there is, and there needs to be a settlement at some point, a way of resolving independent sovereignty for Ukraine, but also linguistic rights and other things for the Donbass. Crimea, as you said, was gifted by Khrushchev in 54. It was part of the protests again in 2014 when, you, if you hear, listen to the Russians, they were fearful NATO was going to go into Crimea. They seized Crimea, annexed it. And that is interestingly not on the table right now, even in the Minsk agreements. Crimea has sort of been shelved for future work because there are other annexation issues, as you know, in Yugoslavia, Western Sahara, others that some people like Anatole Levin, the scholar, believe should be part of a global kind of referendum, maybe monitored through the UN. That may be fantasy. But at the moment, some of the fighting going on, David, by the Russians in the east is designed to bring a bridge to Crimea and water. Because one of the issues in Crimea, as far as I follow it, is the water shortages because Ukraine has had access and cut off water. Where that is resolved right now, it's not central, it seems, in the um, negotiations such as they are. And there have been, gets harder and harder, as you can imagine, as the brutality, the war crimes. But there are negotiations underway and the longer the war goes on, the more dangerous the escalation, more lives lost. But it's uh, a lot of weapons coming in. Edward Said, the great uh, Middle Eastern expert and scholar, talked about unresolved geographies. Just but, you know, caucus- David, there is the expression frozen conflicts. There are quite a few frozen conflicts, like Abkhazia, that region. Well, you have, you know, current warfare between Azerbaijan and Armenia over Nagorno-Karabakh, one of the unresolved geographical ethnic uh, issues when a great empire collapses, there's all of this detritus around that is unsettled and unsettling. The issue of empire is interesting. I will post it, but Steve did a very scholarly project about 10 years ago on how the Soviet Union ended. And he went through 10 theories. It ended with something he never liked, which was that the men make history, that Yeltsin had a will to power, Gorbachev had a will to reform, and they clashed on the scene. And Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia went into a forest in the Belovesh forest and signed a treaty ending the Soviet Union. But, you know, I was going to say I've covered Russia for 40 years. You can't cover a country by focusing on one person. Putin is Russia. But so is the Russian Orthodox Church. So are the regions. So are the regional governors. So is the right wing. So is there a tiny left wing. But the idea of covering a country, 
as if Putin was the only, though I think if he's ousted, you will see a military security troika. You will not see Alexei Navalny in power. And that's a measure of the nationalism that arises in times of war and the militarization. And of course, what happens in in 2014, not just the annexation of Crimea, as you alluded to, the Maidan uprising and the ousting of Viktor Yanukovych, who was close to Moscow, and it's been described as a coup. What exactly happened? Viktor Yanukovych, by the way, Ukraine is deeply corrupt, deeply corrupt. So you get this offer to Ukraine Yanukovych of joining the kind of European Union. And in that offer is small kind of tiny language about also becoming part of a military union. The Russians put on offer the Eurasian Union. And at one moment, there was discussion of Yanukovych Ukraine joining both so that it would be a bridge between East and West and not one or the other. So then you have the Maidan protests. Yanukovych is essentially ousted. There is an agreement, briefly, Germany, France, U.S., to have elections, emergency elections, few months out. That is essentially moot when Yanukovych is pushed out, street action. He flees to Moscow. And then you have Maidan. And, you know, Maidan was a mix of pro-democracy protesters seeking an end primarily to corruption of the elite. But it was also, there were snipers, there were right-wing forces, there were nationalist forces, the Azov Battalion. These are neo-Nazi extremist forces, which should not be denied simply because Russia talks about them. They, they exist, but so did protesters seeking an end to corruption. But the United States got quite involved. The U.S. ambassador in Ukraine was involved. Uh, Victoria Nuland, who uh, is in this administration, the Biden administration was then in the administration, was famously shown handing out cookies to the protesters. But more important than that, she was taped, maybe it was a surveillance call, essentially telling the U.N. Ambas- the U.S. ambassador, excuse my language, F the EU, because we want this person, Yachts. They wanted who they wanted, and it worked out that way. And then the first real prime minister or leader was a chocolate oligarch. <laughs> so the corruption continued. Then you get Zelensky. Is his, he ran on a peace platform. And in the last weeks before the war broke out, and he has become, you know, the hero of our times, because of the circumstances in Ukraine, because it's so difficult, his ratings had dropped precipitously. He was not in a good place in the next election. That has changed. And he has risen, as many do, or some do, to the moment. And he has a very interesting background. His independence is probably limited by the right wing. I think he's also limited by the U.S. And it's interesting, one day he wants negotiations and the next day he seeks more weapons. And I think the U.S. is in there, has been in there, billions of dollars of weapons. And if you send more sophisticated weapons as we are, you need more advisors. Now, you mentioned uh, how we should not focus on Russia simply through the prism of uh, Putin. Nevertheless, he is a very easy target 
you know, former KGB agent. It was very much like what the U.S. and its media did with Saddam Hussein in Iraq. He was Iraq. Everything defined as Iraqi was stemming from Saddam Hussein. So that's a pretty steady trope uh, in U.S. uh, policy. I think our politics are so often seen through the prism of personalities that we apply that globally at the risk of losing sight of some seminal issues. Yeah. But but there's no question that Putin seems isolated as he's made this horrific miscalculation. He seems at war with his security team. The repression of the media and other nonprofit groups is moving in a horrific, precipitous way because they existed. I mean, they have they've been slowly over these last few years, the issues of registration of foreign agents. But, you know, many of these newspapers have been repressed in the last few weeks. So that's a new wave, very dangerous, and um, reminds us, David, that Cold Wars are pretty lousy for those who seek independence, who seek a dissenting voice. Uh, I have been very close to one of the leading independent newspaper editors for since he founded the paper called Novaya Gazeta, which is one of the muckraking independent newspapers, anti-corruption. It participated, remember, in the International Consortium Project about offshore money, Pandora's. So he won a Nobel Peace Prize at the end of last year, along with a Filipino journalist, which has not protected him. His paper had to be suspended uh, a few weeks ago. We at The Nation are publishing some of the articles that this paper could not publish. We've had them translated, reporting from different cities in Ukraine. He was at, splashed with red paint the other day on a train. It's not clear, you know, he has security, but these are people trying to continue to work courageously in um, a climate which, you know, Ukrainian independent papers are probably having a hard time too. Independence is hard to maintain. Well, part of the media landscape here. Uh, in the U.S., of course, a parade of uh, generals that uh, go up to the microphone and cameras. David, I cannot tell you. I'm not someone to throw tomatoes at TV sets. But, I mean, it's not new. But if I had to see more of John Brennan or Clapper, Clapper, he perjured himself. I mean, these are people who come on MSNBC and are treated like arbiters of truth and integrity. And you know what's scary? There's a I, I'm going to sound like an old, but the a younger generation in the last few years has come to admire like the head of the FBI as a truth teller. Now, maybe, you know, it's just I think you need skepticism. You need to seek other voices. That's what I was saying about particularly on all issues. But on Russia, it's been a stream of one note ponies. And that's not a good sign. And by the way, I do think there's something about those who are in the Biden administration, that they've grown up in a unipolar world. And that's what they kind of treat as normal. So there is this running through it, the triumphalism and indispensable nation continues even as the world changes. And that's also difficult to watch. Yeah, among those uh, retired generals that go up to the microphone are Wesley Clark and uh, David David Petraeus. Also, they seem to have... Discredited. Where's the... Wesley Clark nearly started World War III. This was in in Bosnia, in Yugoslavia. A British general had to restrain Wesley Clark 
from starting a NATO-related World War III. Sometimes it's like George Carlin, the comedian, like nuclear war after the sports. I mean, I don't mean to make light of it, but there is like on TV. But, you know, I will. There was a serious story the other day. Networks covered the war in Ukraine more than the U.S. invasion of Iraq. This is a broader story because I think it's important. I'm not going to downplay or say something negative about the coverage of Ukraine, but I think it should be a spur to cover more wars. And we haven't seen war, right, David? I mean, it's been a drone video situation for many people. And I think in seeing the barbarism of war, block by block, destruction, civilians, it has made people aware of the barbarity of war, but it shouldn't be limited. It should not be one country. Or maybe we could end war. You're listening to Katrina Vanden Heuvel on Russia, Ukraine, the war, and the United States. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get copies of this program by calling us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Talk about the uh, refugee crisis which has ensued from the Russian invasion, something like 11 million uh, Ukrainians and climbing. But I'd like you to talk about the contrast between the reception they have received in neighboring countries and the receptions, let's say, Bangladeshis or Afghans or Pakistanis or Iraqis have received from those very same countries. We've seen hypocrisy before. And it in our refugee policy. And one wants displaced people and refugees from all countries to be treated with dignity. But this is not new. I mean, I just came back from a nation trip to Havana. And the treatment of Cubans versus others in the region has been different for more, you know, 60 years. I think that we have to be aware and continue to hold accountable this uh, hypocrisy. But I think the key thing now is to find ways to support this, to fund it. I, I received a proposal from two Ukrainians yesterday about debt relief, relief, you know, relief for the debt of Ukraine. Well, I thought this is good. It could go to help reconstruction and refugees. And then I thought, but it should be something global because the food shortages and the other catastrophes which are going to come out of this war should be treated. Uh, but, you know, Afghanistan, take Afghanistan for a minute. trillion over 20 years. We can't pony up 5 billion to take care of displaced people, the humanitarian crisis. I think we need to think hard. But again, this is about what is true security. Security is not going to be benefited from people displaced and homeless and in refugee camps. And this is not Ukraine only. It's, It's Syria. It's millions of displaced people. We need to find ways to really address that crisis because it's going to be very dangerous and also lacking in humanitarian will. Speaking of uh, refugees, uh, Chomsky and Ed Herman in their book, Manufacturing Consent, uh, in one chapter, it's called Worthy and Unworthy Victims. Uh, So we have uh, worthy victims, and they are in the Ukraine, the Ukrainians who are suffering now. But then you have unworthy victims who are not receiving our solace or our gratitude or or admiration. 
Palestinians, uh, for example. I studied McCarthyism, the suppression of dissent in this country. There's a neo-McCarthyism. And in that spirit, I would simply, some of this is constituent politics. There is a, you remember Captive Nations Week? There is a strong community which lobbies for its needs. I'm thinking of Poland and also Cuba. I mean, Cuba's determining our politics in fundamental ways. Uh, One has to be aware of this. And I think, again, one doesn't need to agree with Noam Chomsky. I do in most uh, of my politics and spirit. But at least you need a debate. People need to know. A lot of people don't know because they're not, as you know, this is part of Ed Herman and Chomsky's, the manufactured consent. You are given news often, which is not consistent with a politics of humanity. Well, not consistent with the facts as well. Absolutely. The old line is, you have a right to your own opinion, but not to your own facts. Then you have, what are alternative facts? I mean, I still, I think media literacy is an old fashioned. I do worry though, David, with all the uh, money pouring into disinformation work. That's, and they're reviving uh, USAID, which had some good moments, but I've covered Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Voice of America over the years. You know, we're replacing one state thing with another, and it's not, in my mind, leading to a blossoming of independent thinking and factual-based thinking. Do you see, uh, for example, uh, BBC Radio and TV, is it any better in its coverage? So here's where I think it's better. For example, we're, you know, just as we're two months into the Ukraine war, there's like a coup in Pakistan, right? I mean, and a friend of me said the other day, why is it, this is a, you know, country that should be covered more. BBC led with Pakistan, I think, the other day. Now, how they covered it, I didn't watch it carefully enough. But the seriousness of topic, you're not getting it on much of our screens. Now, there's a new world. You can go on the computer, this and that. But, you know, people are working two or three jobs. I mean, our work is also the media is trying to tell a truthful, fact-based counter-narrative to some of the news we get. But, you know, people don't have as much time to find those news sources. Listen, I hired Chris Hayes when he was 26 to be editor of the Washington editor of the nation. He used to do a wonderful kind of graduate student seminar Saturday and Sundays, but he doesn't have the ability to break out of the cycle. He can do little things, but it is a cycle and it's the national entertainment state. In 1996, we did the first centerfold for the nation and news was a cog, a small cog in profit-making companies. And one doesn't want to be too reductive, but it is that. They face regulation in Washington. The FCC is looking at a new commissioner. I mean, these are real issues. It's said that truth is the first casualty of uh, Of war. war. And we've seen that play out time and time again. Iraq being the most grotesque and blatant and irrefutable example of, the, I agree. of that. But I, I hate to revise that. The day, I mean, it's broader than just war. The fog of war is critical to focus on, but there are other kinds of wars these days. But when you don't have a media and an educational system, I will add, that provides context and background and history and countervailing voices uh, to, to un- get a broader understanding, and you just don't have that. Someone that 
uh, you featured in the magazine now passed on Gore Vidal. He used to talk about the United States of amnesia. One of my There's favorite. no memory of the past. But here's here's what's happened, I think, which is the militarization of our culture. And I don't want to be too heavy about it, but I do think that that is the first way people approach some of the problems of today. And when you talk about bringing peace, there are too many people in our country who associate that with appeasement, capitulation, and this kind of belief to be tough, to be hard-headed. I've always felt that meant no, nothing got through. And David, you're interesting because I work with a younger generation, many of them very, very smart, but Iraq's feudal war, feudal history. And Vietnam for a whole generation is the war. And for another generation, it's Yugoslavia. But I agree with you how George W. Bush and Dick Cheney have been rehabilitated. Dick Cheney on the floor of the Congress. One Cheney's enough. But you remember they all kissed his ring? I'm, you know, I'm just venting because I agree with you. Iraq was the most destabilizing project in modern contemporary history. And I think we still haven't recovered. I think that the offshoots of what we see even today. You know, there's a lot of talk, obviously, about war crimes and, and uh, war criminals. Uh, we had recently the specter, spectacle of Condoleezza Rice and John Negroponte pontificating on what was going on in Russia to arguably, uh, you know, former sure. government officials who could be charged with war crimes if we had such a tribunal in this country. So I was in touch with someone very wise about this. Well, R- Richard Falk and Peter Weiss, very wise. We never ratified the, the treaty, but Peter made the case that one should proceed in any case with a broader gauged process. Now, Rumsfeld, my memory, was served what in or was tried to were attempts to be to serve him in Munich. And then, of course, you had Pinochet. So there have been attempts. But I think if we're going to talk war crimes again, you can't be hypocritical. It's you know, there are war crimes that have occurred and need to be brought to accountability. There is none if you see Condi Rice or Dick Cheney pontificating or Negroponte pontificating about war crimes. You have the case of uh, Julian Assange. Chris Hedges calls arguably one of the most important publishers of this of this epoch, uh, releasing documents, actual footage of U.S. helicopter pilots shooting up uh, Iraqis and chortling in the background, you know, like laughing. Look, look what's happening to those guys. Assange has been persecuted and now prosecuted as languishing in, in a jail. In, in Britain right now, waiting perhaps extradition to the United States and imprisonment. What do you think well, about the let's, let's talk briefly. Uh, Chris Hedges. Chris Hedges is a prophet, unarmed, disarmed, forearmed. And I, but you, you know this story. I mean, they just deleted. Didn't YouTube delete six years of his RT or some measure of his RT program? I mean, we can look at Assange and I agree the persecution of Assange is a major story. But Chris Hedges, I mean, what's happening to a certain extent, he's not imprisoned, but this is not healthy for our country. People are very fearful of calling it out. I think of Snowden. Steve and I did an interview, four-hour interview with Snowden in Moscow. You know, he doesn't want to be there, but the United States is 
again, going to take on the truth tellers. I think we need organized groups. I do think some of the NGOs who do press freedom are not bold enough. You know, they do more abroad sometimes than bringing it to the United States. Now, that's there are banned books now, freedom of speech, but I think the Assange is a measure of how corrupt our approach to independent dissenting media. In an article you wrote for the Washington Post, How to Avoid a New Cold War and Focus on What America Really Needs, uh, you say uh, in the piece that in the United States, the hawks are in full voice gearing up for a two-front Cold War against both Russia and China. And then yeah. you name uh, Kurt Campbell. Who, who is he? He's not a household He's a scholar. Man. He's not the worst. I mean, there are others who are more hawkish. Um, there's this national security strategy and nuclear posture of view. But the national security strategy of about a year ago now, I think, names Russia and China as the key hot, revanchist adversaries of America and that we're downgrading the counterinsurgency wars. So that's, you know, that is open and it's spoken of. And in Washington, there's kind of a surprise that China hasn't moved more quickly, uh, you know, with Taiwan and all of those. But that's up next. The relationship with China and Russia will be interesting to watch. It, it's not clear. Russia has 10 times more traffic with the EU. It's not a natural relationship with China. But I'll tell you, China is all over Latin America, South America, with its Belt and Road Initiative. It was sending wheat to Cuba. It's kind of stepping back as the United States enters war. And uh, China has done that before, but it seems folly. Taking on China is a different measure than Russia in some ways. So what you had, you know, just the invasion of of Ukraine on February 24th, just four days after that, the IPCC, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it released its report in, in the, using the most dire language. And you know who's really been out front with this, to his credit, I think, is the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. You do. That's good, because people lament sometimes he's not, but he has been very persistent and... Uh, He's, he's called the climate crisis code red. The clock is ticking. He's using the most graphic language. And the results are, you know, all the attention is on the war. It's so exciting. There you have least to said on the BBC with a burning building in the back, background. That's a lot more exciting than the rising levels of, of uh, the oceans. I think, you know, you've had more attention than in the past, but never sufficient attention. You can't give enough attention. This is the existential crisis. How it's framed, I'm a little bit of a heretic on this because I think you need to link it to jobs, green jobs, and really build that out, but it's an existential crisis. But, you know, the yellow vests, one of them was asked the other day, someone said, well, climate crisis is an existential crisis. And the yellow vest person said, My crisis is to get to the end of the week and survive. And in there, one has to find a mutual crisis of resolve and resolution. I'm involved with a group called the American Committee for U.S.-Russia Accord. And on it is a woman who studies illiberalism and does it with history. But the rise is real. 
and in this country too. I mean, I do think we're suffering from a time where there's the neocon and the neoliberal. The neoliberal, to quote Gramsci, you know, it's dying, but it's not, the new order is not yet born. And in that twilight. A lot of morbid symptoms in, in that interregnum, as, as he said. Well, let's talk again about, about the war and what's going on. You know, the conventional narrative is that Putin way overestimated uh, the ability of his armed forces and way underestimated uh, the ability and the will of the Ukrainians to resist the invasion. Does that sound pretty accurate? Yes, I think he underestimated the unity and nationalism of Ukraine. I think he thought Eastern Ukraine would rise up in support, more in support of Russia. I also think he um, thought there might be a blitzkrieg. I hate that term, but it might be very quick, like Crimea was. And I don't think he's listening to a range. I don't know about information. There has been miscalculation. On the other hand, it seems that Russia is now consolidating and there are negotiations that are possible. Anatole Levin, I mentioned, and this is at thenation.com, says 90% of the agreements are there. It's neutrality, language rights, independent sovereign, security guarantees, non-aligned, neutral. But can Zelensky uh, deliver the goods from his... I do think that he's a war leader, but I do think the forces the constellation of forces inside the power centers of Ukraine are extremist nationalist. There are others, but I think that contingent has little interest in resolving a negotiation. You could say the same about Russia, but I think there's more interest at this stage. 90% is a lot, but 10% is a lot too before you get to any agreement. The longer it goes on, the more Ukrainians will be fighting Russians and the more of a peril of, and I don't make light of this, of a use of tactical nuclear weapons, deeper weapons. And I think that is what we're witnessing with the shipping of heavy weapons. Now, people will say, well, the Ukrainians want those weapons. You know, that's, but on the other hand, the Ukrainian country is going to be ravaged with more weapons. And who's going to rebuild? And I I do think the oligarchs, we should impound their yachts. I mean, that's a very interesting part of the story, all the oligarchs and what they're doing. One of them is working with Zelensky, a Russian oligarch, Roman Abramovich. Uh, Zelensky asked Biden not to sanction this particular oligarch because he was helpful in peace negotiations. I'm not sure where that stands. Russian oligarch is now one word in, in, in the corporate media. You cannot have oligarch without the prefix Russian. You know, speaking of language and Chomsky and Herman again, you know, they're called oligarchs, but our people are called entrepreneurs. I know. No, well, job- ours, no ours are called billionaires. No, it's so true. Language matters. And uh, that's, you know, the demonization, legitimate or not, makes it difficult to work out an arrangement or negotiate. Demonization is a tool. And um, I wanna just say one thing I think is very dangerous. And I, I think about younger scholars and writers, you know, there are people who have tenure and things like that. They can say more controversial things and be smeared, slurred, but a younger generation takes note. 
I mean, you know, it's the whole Putin puppet, Putin apologist. If you're skeptical of official language or official news, it becomes harder and harder to stick your neck out and say something of value. Who supports Putin at this point? As the body bags, you know, come back into Russia, you know, as the reports leak. That's, that's very critical. And, you know, there's a movement that started many, many decades ago, mothers, mothers of Afghanistan, mothers of those who were in Chechnya. And the body bags played a critical role in Afghanistan. Who supports them? Diminishing group. Security and uh, it's a term, Silovaki, meaning, you know, the se- strong security forces. So it's not necessarily the army. It's kind of a fusion of intelligence and security. And they're probably, uh, you know, a strong group. But I'll tell you what's happened over the last 20 years is anyone who really felt strongly about better U.S.-Russian relations has been kneecapped. You can see that happen in different places. So it's a diminishing group. On the other hand, there was a poll the other day, as I mentioned, there has been some rallying around the power centers because you start doing World War II parallels, which are not hard to do in a country which lost, you know, 20 million and Certainly an older generation that resonates. And then the TV and the repression of media. We've seen, I mean, we don't need repression. You can just suppress a lot of news. The the Russian military is repositioning itself uh, from the Kiev region uh, to the southeast, to the uh, Donbass area, where there are these two kind of, I would call them statelets. uh, Yeah, they're republics. They call them republics, like little mini statelets within this larger region. Now, what's what's going to happen there? Uh, can you speculate on that? And uh, yeah. the, the drive to Odessa, there's been commentary that Putin really wants to get his hands on Odessa because it's a strategic port. So I think Mariupol became that as well. So I'm not sure what's going to happen with Odessa, but with the two statelets, I think that region, that's a complicated region, which has subverted previous peace negotiations or negotiations as far back as 2014 and 2015, the uh, status of those republics in Donbass, the larger region. But those have to go back to Ukraine. This sounds trivial, but one of the first acts Poroshenko, the chocolate oligarch, took was to ban the use of Russian in schools in textbooks, and the return of linguistic rights would be a big thing. Mariupol, I think, as I mentioned earlier, is important for water, for connection to Crimea. But those, I think, are resolvable. It's um, neutrality. And NATO, which Zelensky has many times said, we don't need to be in NATO, understanding that this was always the kind of jujitsu strangeness. They couldn't even join NATO if they were invited to join NATO right now because of the territorial difficulties inside Ukraine. So Charter 5, the Article 5 in the NATO Charter could not be invoked because you have to meet certain barriers. So there's an element of kind of surreal politics here. In your um, Washington Post piece, you say that a new Cold War appears inevitable. We're in it, David. We're not even in a Cold War. We're in a hot war. There have been a lot of debates over the last 20 years. Are we in a new Cold War? You can argue it's not ideological, right? It wasn't like communism versus capitalism, though Russia's capitalistic in ways. 
What we should aspire to, it seems to me, is a cold peace. No one's going to become best friends, but there are areas we need to work on. The Iran nuclear deal is already in peril, partly because of the fallout from Ukraine. Climate, these issues require some global actors, not friendship, but mutual security. Also, food security is going to be a critical issue with um... food shortages already. Ukraine and Russia are the wheat basket of the world. And that is imperiled in just a few weeks of war. So there has to be, I think, some strength and respect for those who've borne the brutality and barbarism of this war. But is it more war and more killing, more weapons? Or is there a way to provide security and a way forward that respects independence, sovereignty, and takes a measure, listen, if, you know, the war crimes, but I think it becomes a broader frame if it's honest. You know, I'm hearing all of these things about the war in the Ukraine, you know, the tragedy of it and the, you know, the epic suffering and the refugee crisis, but I'm sitting in the United States. What can I do? What can an individual do to affect this situation? Well, Short of going and serving and volunteering, I mean, like refugee camps, not, I think the, as much as you can do in your community to get people to understand what's happening in different ways, divestment from nukes, divestment from weapons, but also to communicate not simply to your congressperson, but to all levels of those who have some power, that war is not the answer. I know that sounds simple, but that we have a lot of work to do in this country to rebuild. We're not isolationists. We want to be part of the climate crisis treaty and all of that. But we need to step back and rethink how we engage the world. Restraint, dialogue, and not through militarization, not through weapons, not through war. It sounds goody two-shoes, but more and more, I think, the basic message I did a briefing for the Progressive Caucus with two other people. It was kind of surprising how little they had really come to understand. the. You know, you need to give some briefings if you have the opportunity. But we are privileged. We're sitting here, but we need to use the tools each and every one of us has. And I've been doing a lot of work with um, women's groups and with those in the region, because I know Russians and a few Ukrainians. Uh, and, and Ukrainian groups, women's groups, to bring their voices into the discussion. Thanks very much for your time, Katrina. Thank you. You were just listening to Katrina Vanden Heuvel on Russia, Ukraine, the war, and the United States. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is the editorial director and publisher of The Nation magazine. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent nonprofit in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Yanis Varoufakis, Chris Hedges, Angela Davis, Vandana Shiva, and Vijay Prashad. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. 
To place a credit card order for copies of today's program, Katrina Vanden Heuvel on Russia, Ukraine, the war in the United States, and for Vijay Prashad's book, Washington Bullets, CIA Coups and Assassinations, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there.